The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the game-changers and shake up the status quo with innovation, I'm getting all my keywords in there, you are in absolutely the right place. Today's buzz Paradox with a question mark on the end? Let me explain. Despite studies that show a positive correlation between diversity and innovation, well, let's look at the facts here. I'm going to quote one of our guests, Janaki Kumar at SAP. She says, the Silicon Valley cradle of technology innovation, tech innovation, is dominated by a programmer culture, think BRO, programmer culture, where 20-something white guys work in a testosterone-fueled environment to create the next tech revolution. Wow, that's a big statement. What does this all mean? What's the result? What's the impact? Well, according to Janaki, this sends a contradictory message to business leaders. What is it telling them? Well, diversity may look good on paper, yada, yada, yada but it might not be worth investing in. Well, that's not true. So we want to talk today about why diversity by design is worth building. It's worth nurturing in your organization, wherever you are in the world listening to us. Big company, small company, diversity is the key to our conversation today. And our panelists will even share some practical tips to help you achieve it. So we're on a mission today. And our topic officially is smart innovation, diversity by design. Let me tell you briefly who our panelists are, and then we'll get started with their opening quotes. First up, I already referenced her, will be Janaki Kumar. If you want to look her up, she spells her name J-A-N-A-K-I, Kumar, K-U-M-A-R. She's Vice President and Head of Design and Co-Innovation Center at SAP Labs Palo Alto. Joining her on the panel is Emily, Emmy, Emmy, E-M-I, Emmy Kolawali. She's the found, listen to this. She's the founding editor of the innovation section of the Washington Post. That's not enough. She's also editor in residence at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford University, aka the D School, D dot school. And she's also a senior media designer at the D School. Very busy lady. Delighted she could join us. And rounding out the panel is Brandon Schauer, S-C-H-A-U-E-R, head of Adaptive Path. It's an influential experience design consultancy and curator of annual design conferences, including including UX Week, the Managing Experience Conference, and the Service Experience Conference. All three very, very busy people, and we're so pleased they took time to join us today. Janaki has sent me a quote from Malcolm Forbes. Oh, you know, he lived from 1919 to 1990. He was an American entrepreneur most prominently known as the publisher of Forbes magazine, which happened to be founded by his dad, B.C. Forbes. If you don't know much about Forbes, Malcolm Stevenson Forbes, the one we're referencing today, he was extremely 
extravagant. He had an unbelievably lavish lifestyle. He spent on parties and travel. He collected homes. Yeah, he didn't just have them. He collected homes. He collected yachts. He collected airplanes. He collected art, motorcycles, and Fabergé eggs. And you might be, I don't know if Janicki knows this, but he collected special shape hot air balloons as well as historical documents. We'll just leave that there. Here's the quote Janicki has selected from Mr. Forbes. Diversity is the art of thinking independently together. Beautiful quote. Janaki Kumar, welcome back to Game Changers. How have you been? Hi, Bonnie. Doing great. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really like this quote because this gives us a glimpse of what it takes to work in a diverse team. Um, a homogeneous team usually uh, works great when uh, the team knows exactly what to do and they just have to do it. But a diverse team um, is needed when you're looking for innovation and there's a lot of ambiguity and you want different people to bring their uh, perspective. So this this quote um, really resonates with me. It's the art of thinking independently together. Now, th- that's a very interesting quote, Janaki, and just indulge me for a second here. I'm thinking... In, in the corporate setting today, let's look at big companies, not those lean, mean startups where everybody seems to maybe have an equal footing, at least in the beginning, other than if you have an egotistical leader or, or a creator of the company. But in a bigger company, thinking independently and together, it sounds, as I said in the beginning, diversity, great on paper, maybe harder to do in real life. When thinking independently, you want to encourage your staff, your colleagues, your managers to think, and then you have to do it together. Is that the big challenge? Is the together part, or is it the getting people to think independently part. What's your thought? I think that the, the interplay of both is the, is the hard part. So uh, we use, you know, we, uh, when we are thinking about new ideas, we intentionally uh, time box the time that we are thinking independently and then how we synthesize all the independent ideas and come to a, um, you know, a common vision. So um, I think this interplay of knowing um, uh, you know, very intentionally saying, okay, right now we are going to, uh, you know, welcome all different perspectives, all your different ideas and go, you know, then you get all the ideas and then you um, uh, align it to the common vision um, and say, what are we trying to achieve and um, how do these ideas come together? And uh, through this process, we found that we, you know, that, that, that whole act of, you know, it's almost like a jazz concert where different people are bringing their different expertise together um, and, and just knowing how to do that, that, that uh, you know, that, um, you know, just bring those, that music together, that's, uh, that is in fact uh, the trickiest one of all. But once you um, get a hang of it, uh, it is truly delightful. Thank you. I love the analogy. Thank you. I'm thinking jazz. I'm also thinking Mahler. I'm also thinking dissonance and brought together into a beautiful whole. So we have a great music reference. Thank you, Janaki, and welcome back. Now let's introduce formally our one of our newcomers. She is Emmy Kalawale, and I'm going to spell her last name in case anybody wants to look her up on social media, K-O-L-A-W-O-L-E, first name E-M-I. And Emmy has selected a quote, equally wonderful, a very interesting quote. We're going to have to talk about this one by Seneca Lucius Aeneas and it's from Letters from a Stoic uh, and let me read you a little bit. Lucius Aeneas Seneca was often known as Seneca the Younger or simply Seneca 4 BC to 65 AD. He was a Roman Stoic philosopher, statesman, dramatist. He's been known to be also a humorist of the Silver Age of Latin literature. He was a tutor and a later advisor to the Emperor Nero and interestingly enough, 
you had to do what the group told you in those days. He was forced to commit suicide for alleged complicity in the Pisonian conspiracy to assassinate Nero. Some sources say he might have been innocent. What can I tell you? But here's one of his great quotes from Emmy, from Seneca. There are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Emmy, welcome. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's great to be here. We're delighted to have you. This is such a deep quote. Talk to me. There is likely more likely to frighten us than crush us. We suffer more in imagination than reality. This is talking about human nature, isn't it, Emmy? Yes, it is. I actually love that about Seneca. Um, I was recently turned on to it. I listened to uh, Tim Ferriss, and uh, I've been hearing him referenced quite a bit around Silicon Valley. Um, there's sort of a, a, a rise, if you will, I think, of, of stoicism happening uh, in and around. So people sort of looking for for more fundamental truths, if you will, to the extent that we can get to those. And I chose this quote because it sort of harkens to our, our ability to control um, our psychology, at least to a certain degree, um, and our ability to sort not even our psychology so much as to control our thoughts, which I think is really what's what's happening when you start trying to bring people into arenas and into areas where they might not naturally feel comfortable. How do we exercise self-control? Where can we go to find wisdom on that? And I found quite a bit of it, actually, uh, reading through Seneca's letters. I'm taking my time. I'd say I'm probably on, like, letter 33, so I'm not too far in, and I'm sure there's <laughs> more gems to be found later on um, of greater depth. But um, that's why I chose that quote, was it sort of reminds me, you know, the things that I believe to be scary, the things that I believe to be frightening are probably more frightening in my mind. And that comes to play when you're around people who might be wholly different from you, who might threaten your, your, your worldview or might, um, you know, make, 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 make what you perceive to be true perhaps less true. They challenge your reality. They puncture your filter bubble. Um, when that fear arises, it's probably more likely to be, to be a fear of the mind rather than a fear in reality. So that's why I chose that quote. Very. I was looking for the link to the topic, and you did it absolutely beautifully, seamlessly. Emmy, question. Do you believe in what, do you agree with Janaki? Uh, I, I casually quoted her in the beginning about the programmer culture of uh, 20-somethings. I'll just leave it at that, working in the <laughs> testosterone-fueled environment on the next tech innovation. Is it really that, oh, I'll use a terrible word, is that sterile? Is it really that homogeneous? Or, or do you see more diversity in that environment? What do you see? I, I think it, it is. It has been pretty homogeneous. Um, you know, you you kind of look around, and, and it's palpable. I'm coming from Washington D.C. and have been living in the Valley now for about three years, and it, there's a marked difference. Um, you know, the Valley, or the, the Washington D.C. is the is the the, the center of government. Um, and I will say, even for government, I, I remember seeing a more a more diverse crowd. Um, that being said, I think things are changing, and it's not just mm. because you know they are they're 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 changing naturally. I think it's because they have to change. Um, in order for there to be new ideas, you need new people. You need new perspectives. You cannot continue to have the same kinds of people with the same kinds of perspectives and outlooks contributing to problem solving and expect to get a different result. This is largely the reason why I've been so intrigued by this marriage of, of design thinking or human-centered design and the, and the raising of awareness around unconscious bias. The one practice, human-centered design, is, is actually about bringing together radical collaborations, bringing people together of varying backgrounds. And that's largely been 
perceived as professional backgrounds. So you bring an engineer with a mm-hmm. with an MBA, with a teacher. But in fact, what what we are also looking at are people of different cultural backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different gender uh, backgrounds. Um, I was, and this is we're we're fighting something pretty deeply ingrained. I was just reading um, uh, Drucker's Effective Executive, and if you read that book now, I mean, I think it's written back in the in the early '60s, perhaps. The 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 pronouns are all male, and so as a woman reading this book, I'm like, wait, can I be an effective executive? And I did seven years of single sex education, and so for me, you know, it's it's very it, it drove home to me the extent to which leadership and entrepreneurship and even the concept of moonshots is a largely masculine reference. And so things are starting to change, and they're starting to we're starting to see cracks in the glass ceiling. Obviously, as we're beginning to see historical um, events happening in the presidency, and so it's 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 starting to change. But I would say that yes, the the stereotype still sadly holds. Um, but there are people who are eager to change it. And, and the key, I think, there is investment and whether or not they're willing to make it. Thank you. And perfect for our topic. By the way, I checked quickly and Drucker published the book in 1967, The Effective Thank Executive. You. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I warned you I like to look things up. Uh, I love yes. it. I love it. Ver- very interesting. Very interesting. A lot of references there. We could do a whole show about what you just talked about. Thank you, Emmy. Pleasure to have you on board. Mm-hmm. And let's bring on our our guy on the panel. I've never said that before, Brandon. It's Brandon Shower, S-C-H-A-U-E-R, Head of Adaptive Path. I mentioned who they are. And Brandon has brought us a quote from John Mayada. And let me read you his spelling because I took it took a while to figure it out. M-A-E-D-A, John the usual. John Maeda is an American executive designer technologist. His work explores the area where business design and technology merge, and I'll tell you how we can anchor him in reality here. He was a professor at the MIT Media Lab for 12 years, and then John Maeda became the president of the Rhode Island School of Design from 2008 to 2013. So recently, he's currently with a design partner at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, and he serves on the board of directors of all kinds of companies. Interestingly enough, he was originally a software engineering student at MIT, where he became Came fascinated with the work of Paul Rand and Muriel Cooper, and I'll just leave it at that. Very interesting world travel guy. Here's the quote from John Maeda that Brandon Shower has selected, and I quote, When people say that diversity is important, I like to say instead, no, it isn't important. It's essential to increase the quality of discourse. Brandon Shower, how are you today? I'm doing great, and I'm so happy to be having this conversation. We are, too, and you're quoted, and interestingly enough, I have to tell our listeners that when we ask for an opening provocative quote from our panelists, we don't sit around a table and say, okay, Emmy, you take this quote, and it kind of fits off with the quote that Janicki is sending us, and Brandon, you can have, this is all done independently, and these quotes are just working so beautifully. That's how good our panels are. So, <laughs> so Brandon, tell me, are you a big follower of John Mayada, and tell me, uh, how does this quote specifically fit to our topic? I am. Uh, John. We've had John uh, keynote some of our conferences, and uh, he's really someone who's always been at the forefront of where technology is going. Um, even today, it, uh, as a, a first designer, really, to be part of a venture capitalist firm, thinking about where technology is taking us, and has um, continued to publish and write in ways that make us think um, newly about the, the problems ahead of us. And diversity is been a consistent part of what he's always talked about. Um, And I love how he puts it in this quote that diversity isn't just important. Sometimes we feel it's like a responsibility. It's just something we should do to be good people. 
And he pushes beyond that and says, no, no, actually, it is essential that we can't have good discourse. And discourse is how we talk to each other. It's our critical thinking. It's our creative thinking. And if we don't have that, we can't go as far. Uh, just as we started the panel with the quote about uh, more greater innovation from teams that are more diverse, uh, mm-hmm. the same sort of diversity is essential to getting great innovation out in the world, and businesses can't be their best without it. And I think John's clearly pointed out the difference between just diversity is a a nice-to-have thing and diversity is something we probably can't live without if you really want to be uh, an organization at the top of your game, if you really want to stay vital. And over time, I think this is going to prove itself out. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And I have to ask you the same question I asked Emmy a moment ago. Do you agree with, <laughs> do you agree with Janaki's statement that I quoted in the beginning about the programmer culture and the testosterone fueled tech revolution in the valley and other places? What do you think? What's your observation, Brandon? You're a man of the world. True, false? How bad is it? I mean, how, how deep is it? <laughs> Yeah, I think it is true. Um, it historically has not always been true. Uh, early days of software programming, it was, uh, it had a lot of at least gender diversity, um, and that has faded over time. Uh, and now it's very easy to walk into an organization and see a lot of sameness when you walk into, say, an engineering department. Um, Apple just released some numbers this morning, for example, uh, because they're trying to be public about their diversity numbers, and I think uh, they said they're employee base now is 32% female, 9% black, 12% Hispanic. Those are up 1% over last year, but um, they've gotten a little bit better, but it shows you how uh, still uh, even a tech firm like Apple can be a bit of a monoculture. Interesting. I just looked up while you were speaking uh, gender diversity in Silicon Valley, and there was a program on the PBS NewsHour, March 17, 2016, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, called How Silicon Valley is Trying to Fix Its Diversity Problem. And let me just read quickly here. Silicon, this is Judy Woodruff, uh, a reporter on, yes, a reporter there. Silicon Valley, the home of the California tech industry, has long been criticized for its lack of diversity. Almost two years after major companies led by Google and and Intel started to publicize their diversity numbers, the ethnic and gender makeup of the industry's workforce remains almost the same. Absolutely. Analysis of employees at the leading tech firms that report such figures, well, there's a key that reports such figures, reveals on average 71% men, 29% women, 60% identify as white, 23% Asian, 8% Latino, and 7% black. And the question is, what is Silicon Valley doing to improve its diversity? Diversity. We'll leave that one alone. Uh, so I think we're, we're on track there. We all agree something has to be done. Thank you, Brandon. Pleasure to meet you. And uh, I want to say something to our listeners. Our panelists are so busy doing so many things. They are diversity embodied in their own careers. And I'm, I'm very happy to meet all three of you. And thank you again for taking the time. Let's circle back to Janaki. We're going to get a little personal here, Janaki. You've been on the show before with me on one of our series. And I'm going to ask you, where are you calling from? That's not too personal. But what are you drinking right now? that we would find interesting tells us a little about you or what are you planning to drink after the show and this is called the what's in your cup today segment so Janaki Kumar talk to us <laughs> Bonnie I am uh, calling from Palo Alto California and in front of me I have um, a green smoothie uh, that I made myself with uh, with greens mango carrots um, banana and um, some other 
Um, so yeah, that's I, I love to have my little smoothie in the morning and. Uh, Tell me something. Do you have kale in there? Do you have parsley in there? Do you have any? Uh, what kind of greens make it green, Janaki? Yeah, I have a, a mixed green um, thing that I have. So it's kale, spinach, uh, some uh, you know, it's a, it's a mixed green bag that I use. Um, I also have some chia seeds and some ah. flax seeds, um, a little bit of protein. Um, yeah, very nice. <laughs> and how does it taste? Is do you put any sweetener in it? No sweetener, but the mango is so sweet in itself that um, yeah, it's it's actually a very it's almost tastes like dessert today. Uh, it's not every day I change and mix. You know, it, it, I open the refrigerator and I see what I have, and I make my smoothie based on that. Uh, so every day tastes a little bit different. Uh, today it tends to be more sweeter than normal. And your refrigerator thanks you for the clean out. I'm sure it works. It works wonders all the way around. Thank you, Janaki. Emmy, Emmy Kalawale, where are you today? And what's in your cup, or what are you planning for later, Emmy? So I am just down the road from Janaki here in uh, Palo Alto. I'm technically in Stanford, California. Stanford has its own uh, its own zip code. So I um, am currently staring at a large cup of uh, coffee, but it's very special to me. My mom is Jamaican, so I have uh, Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee beans, fresh ground from this morning in my cup, and I'm also trying out um, the new Silicon Valley uh, fad, Nootropics. So I have this thing called a brood stick. Um, It's sort of a combination of potentially vitamins and minerals that I've squeezed in there. Um, It's sold by a company called TrueBrain, and so, yeah, I'm trying to boost my caffeine, um, but with a little taste at home. And tell me, what would, what did you call that? Neutronics? Is that what's the word? Neutropics. N-O-O-T-R-O-P-I-C-S, I believe. So there, it's a, it's a movement to try to um, sort of find um, uh, minerals, vitamins that, that boost brain activity. Um, I like this particular company because they claim to give a part of their proceeds towards actual um, uh, neuroscientific research. So that I really, really appreciate. Um, but yeah, I'm just giving it a shot. A friend of mine swears by it, says it's awesome. So I'm giving it a try. I'm going to have to try that. Actually, it is so well known already that somebody put it on Wikipedia, Emmy. Uh, new Tropics. <laughs> yes, I, I told you I'll, if it exists, bit. I'll find it. Yeah. N-O-O. I thought it was N-E-U. It's N-O-O. New, yeah. really. N-O-O Tropics. Yeah. Like the Tropics called smart drugs or cognitive enhancers are drug supplements or other substances that improve, as Emmy said, cognitive functions, functions, particularly executive functions. Oh, I like that. Memory, creativity, motivation in healthy individuals. Ah, okay. Uh, very interesting. Thank you for another great reference. I appreciate that. Drink sure. up. And Brandon Shower, where are you? And we can't wait to hear what's in your cup. Talk to us. Yeah, I'm uh, in San Francisco. Uh, I am actually at Pier 1, which is not that uh, chain store, but uh, an actual pier. We're one pier north of uh, the ferry building uh, where Adaptopath is based. So a super nice location to look out on the bay right now. I see Coit Tower up in the hill. It's pretty foggy, but um, that's what San Francisco is like in the summer. And uh, in my cup, well, right now it's just the standard issue Starbucks because that's what was open on the way early this morning, but uh, hopefully later today we're going to do a little bit of a team off-site with my uh, folks at Adaptive Pass, and uh, hopefully I'm going to enjoy an Almanac uh, IPA, which is a uh, microbrew based in 
San Jose and San Diego, uh, little citrus tones. Um, actually, I think it's listed as being dank, which isn't something you usually think of loving, but uh, it's, it's bitter and it's uh, really true and uh, not too heavy, though. And uh, strangely enough, the label has this wonderful graphic of San Francisco. They had the ferry building on there. They have all the other buildings, and somehow they just kind of missed Pier 1. It should be on there. It's missing. It sure should. I'm looking it up. I see a home. Yes, this is the almanacbeer.com, Almanac IPA. Is that the one introducing our year-round Almanac IPA, a West Coast hop bomb, overflowing with hop flavors and aromas. We start with a copper-hued malt base of California-grown two-row barley, small additions of German Vienna malt, crystal malt, and biscuit malt. Is that the right one? Uh, I think particularly the San Francisco IPA, which might be a strain of that one, but uh, that one sounds good too. It does, and it does. It has just a lot of graphics on it, uh, in, in very fancy type in white, with a lot of scrolling around on a green label. So there you go. Thank you very much, Brandon and uh, Janicky. Might not remember, and the two of you, uh, Emmy and Brandon, don't know me well, but I'm only drinking a cool, clear cup of cool, clear water with a, I have a an orange straw today because the sun is out, and that's the closest I could come to a sun-colored straw. They don't let me have caffeine on radio show days, and today is a doubleheader day, and you probably figured out why. So we are having a very lively conversation here with an interesting panel. They are talking about smart innovation, diversity by design. Where does your company stand? What do you need to do? It's smart. It pays off. It takes an investment in work and time and maybe in funding, but the bottom line is it's good for what you do, and innovation is the name of the game. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and we will be right back. You don't want to miss our real roundtable, though we've really already been having one. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We will be right back. Justin out. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Innovating Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Indeed, we 
are back, and I have to do a shout-out to our tweeters. We've got Karen Geraldo here in Canada. We've got somebody named Yeem, Y-E-A-M. We have Michelle Serrier, who is now owning and running Inno Lifters, formerly 26 years at SAP. And we have Oski Olmes, who is the sponsor of this series at SAP. Thank you all. And we're tweeting at hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. I know you can spell that. We're going to kick off our roundtable in earnest, as I like to say, with some notes here from Janaki Kumar at SAP. And uh, Janaki, I'm going to start with one of your statements, and then you can take it in any direction you want. I know empathy is a big word you want to bring into the conversation, but let's start with this. You say unconscious bias and how it gets in the way of leveraging the contribution of all. And you say it's not easy to combat unconscious bias, and managers need help. To make meaningful progress, we need to address this with empathy. There's that word, empathy and humor, rather than play the blame game. That's a very powerful statement. Janaki, why don't you expand it, and then we'll invite Emmy and Brandon to chime in as well. Go ahead, Janaki. Yeah. Thank you, Ronnie. At the top mm-hmm. of the hour, you talked about um, you know the, the image of Silicon Valley with the programmer culture. And I just want to go back to that, and it actually comes from the Silicon Valley, the show um, on on TV, because this represents the the image of Silicon Valley, and there is truth behind it. But, you know, as a manager myself, um, uh, I also want to approach this this topic with empathy and see how can we help managers rather than blame them for the lack of diversity. Um, And, you know, this brought me, uh, reminded me of of a study that was done in New York City uh, with orchestras, um, where they found that most of the orchestra players were male, um, and you would imagine that okay, maybe only male, um, you know, uh, musicians have the stamina to stay in the orchestra. But someone did a very interesting experiment. They did a blind audition, which means that they put a screen between the person um, selecting the musicians and the musicians themselves, and by the simple gesture, they were able to um, increase. Uh, gender diversity significantly. So that goes hmm. to show that many of us, even though we don't, we have good intentions, we are, um, you know, we are human beings and we have all this baggage of unconscious bias uh, that we have to combat. So my, my thought going forward in really making um, a meaningful difference in diversity is let's not play the blame game. Let's try to help managers, help them overcome their unconscious bias and give them the tools and support so that we can truly create a diverse workplace. So that's my point of view. Thank you. Very, very interesting. I know this is a topic that means a lot to Emmy as well. Emmy, I'm going to ask you to comment on what Janaki just introduced here. Emmy? Yeah, I definitely want to pick up on that very last point of let's not play the blame game. I think that is absolutely critical. Um, and when you start to to talk to people about unconscious bias, it can be very easy to make those who might be part of a majority group, um, you know, let's say white male, feel very blamed, feel very shamed for actions that they may not have even undertaken for a history for which they are not personally responsible, um, but that, you know, they sort of are, 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 are weighted with. But then you also on the flip side have those who are members of marginalized groups. You have women, you have minorities, you have, you know, individuals of varying religions feeling as if, feeling also blame themselves in a way, as if to be reminded constantly of the fact that they're coming in second, that they are climbing a, uh, climbing uphill, something they're already aware of. To make them aware of it yet again in a context where everybody's starting to feel down really just doesn't get you where you need to go. 
And so to that point, I, I really, I, I resonate very deeply. I call the phenomenon blamey shamey, um, where basically everybody <laughs> walks out of an unconscious bias workshop feeling blamed, shamed, and nobody really wants to touch it again because it just doesn't feel good. Um, and so that's why I have found it to be really effective and really um, beneficial to bring in an empowerment component to, to those types of engagements, to bring in human-centered design, to bring in this opportunity for people to learn how to make, how to do, how to think differently, while at the same time becoming aware of their biases. I, I think the two have to go hand in hand. And maybe human-centered design is just my way of approaching it. I know that there are some other people who are working to bring these two things together. But I think that it's critical when we talk about unconscious bias, when we start to bring up these, these involuntary reactions that we have to difference and that, we have, that, we've, ha- that we've cultivated over, over generations and evolved into, when we bring up those things, we have to be very clear that unconscious bias unto itself is a, is, is a, pretty, it's a neutral thing. We all have it. It's there for a reason. I happen to be biased towards eating food that doesn't kill me. We all hopefully are. And that's just a good thing. But there are also negative reactions that happen. And I think it's, 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 it's imperative that we bring people to a sense of empowerment when talking about this universal trait. And the thing that I like to say is, as we teach at the G School, everyone universally is creative. We all have the opportunity to be creative. It's, it's innate to us. What is also innate to us is our bias. And so to apply our universal creativity to help offset the negative uh, bias products of our universal bias, I think it's, it's just, it, it's there for us to use. It's there for us to access. And, and the more we are aware of the pairing of these two things, I think the stronger our organizations and our culture and our society are going to be. Thank you very much, Emmy. Very, very good. And uh, I'd love to get Brandon's thoughts on this. Brandon, empathy, the blamey, shamey game, as Emmy so, so uh, lovely put it. What are your thoughts, Brandon? What's going to help? Yeah, I, I agree. Unconscious bias is totally real. Um, blaming someone for it is not the answer, but I do think surfacing it is part of the answer is to help people become aware. Can Do they understand this, how great the diversity problem is? Do they... Uh, can they see that perhaps they have pay inequality uh, on their team as a manager? Uh, I think there's also some interesting tools that people are experimenting with as well. Uh, I've seen one that actually suppresses or hides the headshot from LinkedIn when a recruiter or manager is looking at it, just so you're judging someone purely off of the skills they have, not off of any unconscious bias that you might bring to the situation. Um, Facebook's playing with things like uh, you must uh, interview a woman or a minority for every open role just to increase, I guess, exposure is, is really the, the intent there. So I think with unconscious bias, it's also still bring it to the forefront and let's talk about it. Let's um, certainly not uh, bury it. Thank you very much. Very well put as well. Janaki, this was your topic. I'm going to circle back to you while I'm looking at Emmy's notes and see where we're going to go next. Janaki, any thoughts on what Emmy and Brandon added? Go ahead. Yeah, and unconscious bias is difficult to handle because it's unconscious, right? And as Brandon said, we do need to surface it, um, but do it in with just love, understanding, and empathy. Uh, but also remembering that bias goes both ways. Sometimes candidates opt, opt out. You know, maybe women or minorities may opt out of a tech uh, career, thinking that's not for me. I'm not. I'm not good enough, or I don't have the the skills just because. Um, uh, you know, the, maybe the job description is written in such a way, or when they visited the company, they felt a little bit out of place. You know, there are unconscious biases that creep in on both sides, and um, just uh, you know, making it uh, making people aware of it 
um, we can uh, we can make some meaningful progress. Thank you, Janaki. And Emmy Kalawali, I'm looking at your notes here. You have so many great talking points here. I want to uh, talk about number two you sent me, Emmy. You say, if organizations want to create, and you put quotes around this, a collective experience of inclusion. I really like the way that sounds. They need more than data and case studies. They need to learn, understand, and apply a human-centered design approach. Where does this come from, Emmy? Who has to start the process? Is it top-down? Is it grassroots in the company? Why don't you explain and, and give us some practical ideas, because I promised in the beginning of the show we would help our listeners understand how to achieve this. So why don't you start? Sure. So basically, I think that this really starts um, when you're looking at a a culture change within an organization, you're looking at the top. Um, It it sort of goes back to to the basics. If you really want um, change to take place, you know, that's that's where leadership comes in. Um, But at the same time, you also have to empower people at the bottom. You have to empower middle managers to be able to execute on that change. And so even as you're beginning to to change the language and the, the, the approach of those at the top, you also have to simultaneously enable those in the middle and also, by virtue of that, empower those at the very bottom to begin to think differently. And as you're choosing who to hire in and who to bring into your organization, you know, really sort of making sure that you set at the very beginning that tone, that tenor of we are an organization that is, is, is really geared towards being not only diverse, but also being inclusive. And this is where things start to get a little tricky in the sense that it's not just about sort of ticking off, you know, how many, you know, women do I have? How many African-Americans do I have? Which we're seeing in a lot of these reports. Instead, it is a very difficult to measure cultural aura, uh, an an ethos of of an organization that that fundamentally needs to change so that you don't end up with retention issues in the sense that you start hiring diversely, but you can't retain the diverse hires that you bring in because culturally you you haven't created a a place for them to land, for them to be their authentic selves. And so that that culture of of inclusion, um, that, that sort of experience of inclusion really depends on being able to make those cultural changes. And now, this is why I think the human-centered design tie is so important, is because human-centered design also implies a cultural change, also requires a cultural change within an organization, so that people begin to not only look at problems in this sort of rote, you know, we're going to build a really expensive prototype, we're going to, you know, get it to the client, and we're going to give them what, what we think they need as opposed to what they're actually expressing themselves to need. It's, it's that type of cultural change is also what human-centered design is seeking to accomplish. And so my my hypothesis is that if you can bring human-centered design and this message of awareness of unconscious bias and a need for cultural change to the point of creating inclusive environments, you can begin to get organizations to start making these changes in tandem rather than seeing, rather than having them see human-centered design as a means of merely changing my business model as opposed to unconscious bias as a means of sort of making people aware of uh, of a liability, but instead say these two things together are how my company will succeed. That that's the that's the the sort of paradigm shift that 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 I think is necessary. And so, looking at human-centered design as a means of raising awareness of unconscious bias, how we have those empathetic conversations, how we engage not only with our clients but with our employees, with a with a mindset of the beginner, with a bias towards action. When you see something that is wrong, or you see somebody being you know discriminated against, or you see a moment that perhaps is is in defiance of that inclusive culture, you say something, you do something, you change something to have a culture that is active and empowered in that way, I think is is really important. The brass tacks of it, I think, will be different for every single organization. What works mm-hmm. for a Google might not work for a Facebook. So to give a prescription, you know, right here on a radio program, 
program is almost impossible, but I think it's bringing in those experts, bringing in those people who for years have been doing this work, studying psychology, studying design, studying how to bring, bring different and new cultures into organizations, bringing those people in and really investing in what they know and executing on what they know, I think will further not only individual companies and individual industries, but will further our society overall. Thank you very much, Emmy. That's a very big global wish, a, a big yeah. wish list, and, and we, we can only hope and hope that programs like this will, will increase the awareness you're talking about. Brandon Shower, love to get you to comment, please, on what Emmy introduced, and then we'll invite Janaki to comment as well. Brandon? Yeah, she talked about not just diversity as kind of headcount of who's here and who's coming in the, the front door as an employee, but also the sense of inclusiveness, that can you really bring and be your whole self at work because mm-hmm. if you have a diverse set of people, but they're still having to act like the programmer and they're having to fit the programmer mold, well, then you're not getting the richness of diversity. You're not getting their life experience. You're not reflecting the same sort of diversity we see in our own society. So um, we have to create environments that actually have that sense of inclusion or else you're, if you work really hard to get a, a diverse uh, employee base in the front door, they're going to leave just as quickly because they're going to find themselves frustrated, um, trying to fit some other mold that isn't themselves, and the organization is not what it promised to be uh, after they've shown up. Very interesting. Let me just introduce an M word into this conversation and have you pounce on it, I hope, Brandon, and then we'll see what Janaki and Emmy have to say. The M word is millennials. Are they the ones who are bringing in this awareness, this consciousness, this saying, wait a minute, you promised me inclusion and diversity. I'm looking at programmer or programmer or whatever it is, and why aren't there more of XYZ groups in here? I don't want to stay here. Are the millennials bringing that raised consciousness? Brandon? I think they are. They they see it. It's more visible in their world. They live in a more global culture um, through Internet, through social media, everything. And so when they come into a workplace and don't see that same sense of diversity they see out in the world, um, it is a clash. It is uh, something that they're going to increasingly be a voice for, and uh, we need to be able to accommodate it if you want the best and brightest of the millennial generation. Thank you very much. Janaki, thoughts on what Emmy introduced and Brandon's comments as well. Go ahead, Janaki. Yeah, I um, you know, completely agree with uh, both the thing, and I just want to add a few things. I love the cultural aura that uh, uh, you know, Emmy introduced, and I uh, want to say that there is an aspect to it. You know, when we hire uh, employees, we look for their uh, you know, the skill sets that they bring in, but we also look at cultural fit. You know, that's a norm that most companies in the Silicon Valley do, uh, but it can backfire a little bit as well. When you look for a cultural fit, you're basically looking for people who fit into your current culture. But what I urge managers and leaders to do is to not only look at cultural fit from that perspective, uh, from the current culture perspective, but also look at your the culture that you want to create. So what is this candidate bringing into your culture that could make it even better? So um, just looking at uh, cultural fit from a little broader perspective and a more futuristic perspective can help you create the cultural aura um, that, that you're looking for. And, uh, you know, the point about the millennials, I think the, um, I, I'm so optimistic about the next generation. You know, I, um, I mentor many um, young people and I also, you know, have and surrounded uh, by millennials. And, um, uh, and I'm so, uh, you know, impressed by their global awareness, their connectedness, their, just their empowered 
way of being and this, the way they seek purpose in everything that they do. And it just inspires me. And, it, you know, I learn from them as much as they learn from me. Um, and from that uh, perspective, I think it's a sign of the times. You know, the fact that people in, have a higher expectation of inclusion, um, a, a higher expectation of just questioning uh, the status quo. Um, I see that not just from our millennials, but but everyone, you know. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I just want to say that it's almost a sign of the times, and um, and and it's a very optimistic uh, uh, the way things are trending. Thank you very much, Emmy. I'm going to give you just a minute to wrap up on this part of our conversation. Very good comments added, of course, from Brandon and Janaki. Emmy, anything you want to wrap up on this for me, please, before I move on. I, yeah, I just want to say that I think it's remarkable and wonderful how you can have a group of three very diverse people all agree on this point. Um, this is, you know, every single one of us is different and all of us are bringing, you know, a very different background, uh, you know, to this table and we all agree on this. And so if we can do that, I think it's more than possible for companies and organizations to be able to figure this one out. Um, and if we are going to get to this, you know, uh, sort of Asimov envisioned and, you know, beautiful futurist, uh, uh, you know, future that we're all looking at and wanting and trying to move towards. I think that it's going to be imperative that we bring everybody to the table and we figure out how to give everyone a seat. And that's going to mean giving everyone a seat at, you know, the computer terminals at Google, at, you know, the, the you know, the conversations and design, uh, you know, reviews at Facebook and everywhere else in Silicon Valley, all of these wonderful companies. And I know that there are a lot of people working really hard to try and there are a lot of people who look and walk and talk a lot like us sitting around tables trying to, you know, really bang their heads against this one. But it's going to take the same amount, invest, the same amount of investment as it does to try to create the next generation of transportation or the next generation of energy. And so that's, you know, that, that's really what I'm trying to get at. And it seems like human-centered design is being adopted towards those ends. I think it, it can be adopted towards this one, too. Thank you, Emmy. Very well put. And Brandon, I'm picking up a couple of notes here from what you sent me before the show. And there are two I like particularly. Let me just combine them and indulge me for a second here. Brandon Shower says, dude, think. I wish, should have, I should have mentioned that in my opening, Brandon. It was too good to, let, to save till the end. Dude, think could be the tech world's version of groupthink. And then he says, groupthink is a long known tendency of groups to make bad decisions because of their tendency to want to confirm. The second part I want you to talk about, Brandon, is, you say a monoculture cannot create products and services for users that are unlike them. So, Brandon, could you combine those two? I love them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, we know groupthink of when you, when you put uh, people in a room, they just want to conform and uh, through just social norms try to find the, the, the mean. And so if, if a group starts to go uh, one way, everyone starts to go the same way. Well, with groupthink, the idea is, okay, what if that happens, but the, the set of people are even more alike? They've had the same set of life experiences. They're coming from the same perspective. Well, I feel like you're going to norm. You're going to get to one mentality much quicker, and chances are it's going to be the wrong mentality. That there's this idea that um, your customer base is going to be really diverse, and it's going to increase in terms of its diversity. So if you have a group that's developing new products and services, that's only thinking from one segment of society, from that, uh, that set of life experiences, and they don't understand what it's like to be 
in the shoes of the rest of the addressable market, you're never going to get to them. You're never going to create products, services that actually fit the needs of those people. Uh, Emmy brought into the uh, conversation the idea of human-centered design. And yes, it's a great process for understanding human beings and working collaboratively to create solutions for them, having empathy for their needs. But um, sometimes you just still, if you're missing the, the richness of different life experiences of what is it like to be a single mother? What is it like to grow up um, with, with an unconscious bias against you? What is it like to struggle um, through things that others might think are, are very easy or very common? Um, it's very hard to design uh, products and services that meet that kind of diversity. And so having that kind of diverse group in your team is going to create a much better product that's going to reach a much larger audience. And without it, um, yeah, organizations are constraining themselves in their business. Thank you. That's that's our bottom line uh, commentary here. I appreciate that. So you got to do what the market wants, and if you don't know who they are and what they want, what they need, what they like, what their culture is, you're just not going to meet meet them. There's no such thing as customer centered, customer focused products and services if you don't know who they are. Correct, Brandon? Nailed it, Bonnie. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's circ- circle around the table to Janaki. Uh, we're we're about four minutes away from starting our crystal ball predictions round, so I want to keep the comment short. Janaki, please comment on what Brandon just said. We got some real pithy words of wisdom from him. So, what are your thoughts, Janaki? You don't have to agree, but yeah. I think you might. Uh, <laughs> yes, human-centered design is dear to my heart, and uh, and you know, no one creates a product for one market anymore. You know, everyone is looking at the global market, um, and you know. We really need to push ourselves to think about designing for that last billion. You know, there are so many, uh, we are <clears throat> designing with a set of assumptions and <clears throat> to broaden the reach and reach the next billion, we really need to, um, you know, question our assumptions and go uh, broader. One um, comment I heard recently uh, was that uh, Facebook has a 2D t- Tuesday where they they make everyone, you know, at least their engineers work with 2G just to see how it feels to be in a different part of the world who are experiencing uh, their products and services through that that kind of uh, um, infrastructure. So similarly, you know, I think we need to uh, just force ourselves to have empathy for different people and that can only make our products that much more um, accessible and better. Thank you very much. Emmy Kalawali, love to have your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, Bonnie, I'm trying to steal a page from your book and look things up while I am on the radio, which is so much harder than you make it sound. Thank <laughs> you, dear. I'm looking at a piece from uh, Brooke Masters here on um, on, uh, on the Financial Times, and it's from June 24th, and in it she writes, I think, a sentence that really sums it up. Developing digital products and advertising campaigns that appeal to a wide range of customers is bound to be easier when the people doing the work are more like their potential customers. And if our customers are diverse Diversifying, there is the companies have no choice but to figure out how to do the same, and so you kind of have to bring your customers in to start designing your products and the people who look like them, the people who walk like them and talk like them. And so this work could not be more critical. I think it is it is quite it is right up there. I would say top one, two, three of things that companies need to think about and and start moving towards. And I think, you know, uh, a really great point was made in the sense that human-centered design is great for getting to know human experience and and doing that empathy work. But if you're not doing it with people in the room who can see all sides of, you know, a really multifaceted problem, these sort of gnarly problems for which we don't have pre-existing solutions, we are bound to design things that do not work for, as Jonike said, that last billion. There's just no way it's going to happen. And so I think, yeah, Again, you know, a group of diverse people around the table agreeing on 
agreeing on something, there's got to be, there's got to be some truth here. There's got to be some, um, there's got to be a a real imperative uh, on the part of companies to really bring this work uh, in and not just bring it in, but to make it, make it a chief investment. Um, And Emmy, forgive me, I did a look up while you were talking because I thought I'd have some fun with you. I found an article called Why Human-Centered Design Matters, and you're not going to believe this. This is from Mm -hmm. Wired.com, 2013. Let me just read the opening paragraph because we have to get going with our predictions. In 1894, W.K. Kellogg made a discovery that would forever change what we eat in the morning, seeking a more digestible breakfast alternative to baked bread for his brother's hospital patients. The bespectacled former broom salesman accidentally left a pot of boiled wheat out overnight. The wheat became softened, and when he rolled it out and baked it, each grain became a crispy flake. He tried it with corn. Over the next few years, he perfected the tasty flakes by experimenting with formulas and tested them on his brother's hospital patients. He had invented or designed cornflakes. What mm-hmm. can I tell you? What do you think of that? I mean, pretty cool, right? I, you know, I think it's great. And, you know, if you uh, watch the, the uh, documentary uh, featuring Michael Pollan in Defense of Food, there's some really great images of that, of that period in uh, America's evolution in food. Yeah, you know, you got to try it. It's all about trial and error. If he had just sort of tasted it unto himself and then decided to box it and manufacture it and put it out there without testing it with patients, I mean, you know, he probably wouldn't have gotten as far as he did. But it was about going out, reaching out and being in and around people and actually trying things with people that is what got the product to where it is. And we're still eating cornflakes today. So you got to get out there. You've got to be with people. <laughs> you know, you do. Success. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for indulging me. I had a lot of fun sure. with that. Let's circle back to Janaki Brandon, we can get your closing comments when we do predictions. We've got four minutes left. You each get 60 seconds. I like the year 2020. You certainly don't have to. Janaki Kumar, 60 seconds on the dot. Predict what will be different at some point in the future on our topic of smart innovation, diversity by design. Janaki Kumar, go. Yeah, as I said, I, was, I am an optimist. So as a talent pool for specialized jobs um, is, uh, is shrinking, uh, companies that learn to attract and manage a diverse talent pool will win out, and those who are stuck in a stereotypical view of thinking will be left behind. That's my view. Wow, that's a good one. That's a kind of a do or die, get with the program or be left off the bus and there'll be no more cornflakes for you, will there, Timmy? Okay, I don't know where I came up with that. Thank you very much. Maybe he needs to design his own. Emmy Kolawala, you know what? Uh, Janaki didn't use her whole 60 seconds, so I'm going to give you 60 seconds plus 15. So what are your predictions, Emmy? Go, Go ahead. My prediction is very aspirational. I predict that we are not talking about this in 2020. We're talking about how it worked. We are talking about how we don't need to do studies anymore as to whether or not, you know, bringing in more diverse teams is profitable. We are not talking anymore about whether or not, you know, bringing in women and figuring out how to make workplaces that are inclusive of families and of, of a quality of life, uh, you know, make that, that that makes companies more profitable. I predict we're not talking about how to do this. We're talking about the great results that happened because we have highly, highly aspirational, but as somebody who is still, you know, in the hopefully, knock on wood, prime of her working life, this is what I want to see. This is what I want to work towards. Um, so I, I would be thrilled to be back on in 2020 talking about not this, but talking about instead the results of this and how we're, we're realizing the future, both technologically and socially, that we all uh, are looking forward to seeing. We'll make it a day. Quick question for you, Emmy. Do you think there are companies out there that are still saying, why? Why should I? What's so big deal about diversity? Why do I have to include? And do you think there are, I'll say old guard, I didn't say old guys, old guard is saying, 
you know, it's working. We do what we can. We got a mid-market share. We're pretty cool. People like our product. Who cares what we got inside the office? Quick, quick answer, Emmy. Yes or no? Are they still out there? Do they need more convincing? I think it's much more nuanced than that. They're out there, but they're just trying to figure out how to invest and whether or not the investment is worth it. I think they care. They just need to figure out how to invest and how much. I like your answer better than mine. Okay. And Brandon Shower, I have a whole 60 seconds and I'll throw in a 12 second bonus if you're really good. So go ahead. What's your prediction, Brandon? Sure. Um, I have a similar prediction. I think that organizations, the, the demand side of the problem is going to be solved. They'll want it. They'll need it. They completely will understand how to go about it, not just hiring, but also inclusivity, uh, training managers, the full thing, uh, culture as well. But I think we will still be working on a little bit of the demand, or excuse me, the supply side. I worry that we have turned off a generation to tech and finding that next wave of people who really want to go into tech um, from a diverse background uh, is going to still be something we're working on, um, but we have sight, uh, line of sight in terms of how to do it. Uh, I hope also that we'll be able to actually create a diversity stock index where you'll say the companies yes. that are more diverse are outperforming yes. the rest. Yes, I like that very much. Great prediction. Janaki Kumar at SAP Labs Palo Alto Co-Innovation and Design. Thank you. Emmy Kalawali doing a million things at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, the D School at Stanford. Thank you. Brandon Shower, head of Adapted Path. What a delightful panel and so smart. And thank you for playing with me today. Our topic was Smart Innovation Diversity by Design. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I think I said that today is a doubleheader day, so I'll be back at 2 p.m. Eastern. Today, by the way, is Thursday, August 4th. Where is the year going? 2 p.m. with a live edition of Changing the Game with HR. We'll be talking about HR on-premise. Should I stay or should I go? Tune in to find out right here on the Business Channel. Thank you to Justin, our engineer at World Talk Radio. We'll talk to you soon. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Like Janaki, like Brandon, like Emmy, go out and be a game changer today. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.